Why did you come here this morning? Are you here for you or are you here for Him? Some people bounce from church to church for months, even years, trying to find a church where they can have their needs met. Is that why you're here this morning? So that your unmet needs will be met? Isn't that why people are supposed to go to church? To get their spiritual needs met? It's becoming more and more prevalent for professing believers who do attend the church, especially those below about age 35, to attend only sporadically, occasionally, on those Sundays when they can fit it in. For whom are they bothering to attend a church service every now and then? If you're one of the rapidly shrinking minority of church attenders, most of them above about age 35, who gives something meaningful from what they earn each month in the form of an offering, for whom are you giving it? Are you giving it to to avoid whatever it is that God does to those who don't give? If so, that has the same kind of value as the child who complies with his parents in order to avoid a spanking. But is that the motivation that God seeks from His redeemed? Would you give less if there was no tax break? When you sing worship songs on Sunday mornings, assuming you get here in time for the music portion of the worship, why do you sing? Is it for Him? Are you so focused on whether the style or instrumentation or all of the lyrics are exactly in keeping with your expectations that you really end up just mouthing the words and waiting until the singing is over so you can get to the part of the worship service that you find meaningful? Or do you sing with all your heart before the Lord to celebrate with your brothers and sisters the wonder of God's character and the magnitude of God's grace toward you and toward us in Christ. Why do you pray? Are your prayers filled more with expressions of discontentedness over your unmet needs and the unmet needs of people you care about than they are filled with contented praise for all that God has already given to you in Christ and for who He is. When you ask God for things, for you or for others, are they the things that match up with His revealed agenda for you and for your brothers and sisters? Or do they have a lot more to do with things that are passing away? How much do your motives for doing any of these spiritual practices actually matter? As long as you're careful to do these things that God has commanded. Isn't that the main thing? To, to obey God, to do what He commands us to do? It's not supposed to be about how we feel about it, right? In the next two chapters of Zechariah that we'll look at this weekend next, God addresses those kinds of questions head on. And once again, I've found the time spent in these chapters to be very convicting and very powerful. The Spirit is speaking to us through these things that were written 2,500 years ago. And we need to be paying attention 
There's a question that's posed in the first three verses, a question from the people to God. Based on that question, during the 70-year the exile of Judah in, in Babylon, the exiles, or at least some of them, had observed a fast in the fifth month of every year and in the seventh month of every year. And during those fasts, Judah would abstain from eating meals for a specified period of time, and they would engage in, a, in, in mourning in memory of a painful event in the past. The fast in the fifth month was a mourning over the destruction of the temple. Second Kings chapter 25 says that when Nebuchadnezzar sent the captain of his, of his guard to destroy the temple... Looted it of its treasure, and then on the seventh day of the fifth month, he burned it and destroyed it. That was 587 or 586 BC, depending on which historian you read. But it was the fifth month. That's clear from the text. The fast in the seventh month was not specified here, but it, or in First Kings, uh, Second Kings specifically, but. 2 Kings 25 says that two months after the destruction of the temple, a man named Gedaliah was murdered. Gedaliah was the ruler that Nebuchadnezzar had appointed to rule over the very poor people who remained in Jerusalem after the ransacking of the temple. And Gedaliah was a good guy. He told the people, the Judahites who remained, the very same thing that Jeremiah and Isaiah had told them. He said, submit to Nebuchadnezzar because God brought this judgment upon you. He said, you get to live in the land. Enjoy that. Submit. Well, the people didn't care for that idea. So a few of them gathered up and they murdered him. And then they fled to Egypt for refuge. And so what did God do? He sent Nebuchadnezzar to Egypt. And Nebuchadnezzar overthrew Egypt. So they were taken captive anyway, the ones that survived. Based on these uh, first few verses of Zechariah 7, a delegation of men from the city of Bethel, about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, came down to Jerusalem to consult with the priests and the prophets, to ask them a question. Now, the prophets would have been Haggai and Zechariah. Those were the two prophets that were speaking for God at this point in Jerusalem. And their question had to do with whether they should continue observing the fast and ritual mourning of that fifth month. And that kind of made sense, right? Because the rebuilding of the temple was underway. And they were going to have a new temple pretty soon. In fact, just a couple of years after this. So why should they keep mourning over the destruction of the old temple instead of celebrating the construction of the new temple? There was nothing wrong with their question. What was wrong was in their hearts. And so God responded with two more questions. He does that a lot in the Bible. Jesus does it a whole lot, did it a whole lot during his earthly ministry. And his questions constitute a stinging rebuke. Not just against those emissaries that came and asked, but against all of Judah. Zechariah 7 verses 5 through 6. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And then a second question. And when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? See, there, there are two questions there. 
When you fast, is it for me? And when you feast, is it for me? Later on in chapter 8, we'll see kind of the, the back side of the, the, the other end of a parenthesis that has to do with fasting that puts chapter 7 and 8 together. And at, at that point, in, later in chapter 8, it talks about God turning Judah's fasts into feasts. And so here in this passage, when it says, when you eat, do you eat for me? I believe it's talking about the festivals, the feasts. Religious observances, both of them, right? So the first question addressed what motivated God's people when they didn't eat. <laughs> and the second addressed what motivated them when they did eat. See, God isn't interested just in what moves us to skip a meal. <laughs> He's just as interested in what moves us to eat a meal. Because the fundamental motivation in doing either is supposed to be the same. And until that motivation is right... Our actions will be pointless at best, regardless of whether they are special, religious, pious-looking observances, or common non-religious actions. The heart of chapters 7 and 8 of Zechariah is right here in these two questions. And he poses those questions to all the land and to the priests. God's response reveals that his definition of fasting was and is very different than theirs was. What does it mean uh, to fast for God instead of for us? It's kind of hard to pin down our motivations sometimes, isn't it? So how do we know whether we're doing something like fasting with the right motives? Well, God clarifies what he means by providing an object lesson from Judah's own history. He takes a look back in time to the time of their forefathers and he tells them what they did about this same matter. Now the words fast and fast and feast are not mentioned again until the end of chapter 8, but again, that is the theme of these two chapters. Everything in these chapters hinges on those two questions. When you fast, is it for me? And when you feast, is it for me? Now he shows them in verses 7 through 14 that their forefathers got this wrong. <laughs> and then he tells them what happened to them because they got it wrong. And that's supposed to get the attention of this current crop of Judahites. In verse 7, God says that he previously said these same essential things to his people before the 70 years of exile, back when Jerusalem was inhabited and the, the area south of Jerusalem and all the cities were inhabited and things were basically good as far as the Judahites were concerned. If you skip down a little bit to verse 12, it says that the these things that God pointed out to Judah in the previous generation, he pointed out through two points of revelation, the law and the prophets. Now, the law of Moses presented the character and holiness of God through principle by example, basically. It presented the character of God, what God is like, and it called God's people to manifest that character in their dealings with one another. But the heart of the whole law was the call by God to His people to love Him 
with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their strength. That's the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 and 13 says, And now Israel, what is it that the Lord requires of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, this is deeply personal. And to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. It is deeply and fundamentally personal. Everything God's people do is to be done out of love for God. So when you fast, you fast for God. And when you feast, you feast for God. Now, getting to the kind of the nuts and bolts of this matter of fasting for a moment. If we define fasting simply as a abstaining from eating meals, how many fasts were commanded of Israel under the law of Moses? Technically none. Some people say that the Day of Atonement was a fast, but that's a bit of a leap from the text, from my perspective. Um, if you, if you believe that's a fast, I'm cool with that, but, but fasting was not a big deal in the Old Testament law. In fact, there's a whole lot more said about feasting than there was about fasting. About the feasts of the tithes and the first fruits and bringing all that you had before the Lord and celebrating, enjoying the abundance that God had placed in your hands together with your family and your, and the, the sojourners who were in your land and even your servants. See, the, the official enforced fast that Zechariah is talking about here, that God's talking about, were traditions implemented by men, not by God. Now that didn't mean they were bad, not at all. It's not to say that that God does not call His people then, didn't call them then or doesn't call them now to fast. Fasting from meals or from other common pursuits can be a very valuable practice, but only if it's the kind of fasting that God calls legitimate. The real question is not whether we fast or feast. The real question is for whom? For God or for us? It wasn't just the law of Moses that caused Israel and Judah, uh, called Israel and Judah to do everything that they did out of love for God. Throughout their history, the Holy Spirit spoke to them through the prophets that God had sent into their midst and called them to the same singular motivation for all that they did. So what have the prophets had to say about the matter of fasting? Well, there's no better place to go for that answer than Isaiah chapter 58. And I don't know how many of you remember it the way I do, but Bob Deffenbaugh's message on Isaiah 58 from almost 10 years ago was one of those messages that will always be burned into my heart. And if you want to look at it, which I highly recommend, go to Bible.org and look at the messages from Bob Deffenbaugh and find the one on Isaiah 58. That will be time very, very well spent. There is no way, if you read that passage, that you can come away thinking that God's view of fasting had only to do with meals. No way. That chapter starts with a sarcastic rebuke from God against the Israelites for their false piety for their grievous distortion of the religious practice of fasting. In the first verse, God tells 
his prophet Isaiah to cry out loudly, to raise his voice like a trumpet, and to declare to his people their transgression and their sin in this matter. And then in verse 2, with dripping sarcasm, God pats Israel on the back for their supposedly noble motives. He says, Yet they seek me by day, day by day. They delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. And you could follow that with a big fat knot. At the beginning of verse 3, God quotes Israel's own complaint against him. And he says, Why have we fasted? And they say to him, Why have we fasted and you do not notice, Lord? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? You do not see the fasting. You do not notice our humility. See, what they're saying is, God, aren't you paying attention? (laughs) We're doing everything right here. Heck, we're even skipping meals. Look how humble we are. But you're not playing along, Lord. Where's that favor that's supposed to come to us from your hand when we do the things that you tell us to do? What gives? And so God tells them what gives. Starting in the second half of verse 3, God exposes what their fasts are actually like. He says, Behold, on the day of your fast you find your desire. Not mine, yours. And you drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. See, while they're fasting and expecting God to be impressed, they're focused on their own desire. They're abusing their workers. They're contentious and angry and even violent toward their fellow Israelites. But they're fasting. In verses 5 and 6, God asks them if their fasts are the kinds of fasts that He chooses. And it's here that He gets very direct about contrasting fake, fraudulent fasts with the real deal. Verse 5, He says, Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? And that The parallelism in that question is very useful because the second half explains what the first half means. The kind of fast God chooses is a day for a man to humble himself. And here's where where they got wrong. He says, Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? See, the humility that God calls a real fast isn't external or ceremonial. That means nothing to God. Bowing your head like a reed bows in the wind, spreading out a bed of ashes and sackcloth to proclaim your mourning, those mean nothing to God. The only value that external religious practices ever have is when they remind us to be truly submitted to God. They are memorials for us, not for God. God is not impressed. They're physical reminders to get our attention, not to win God's favor. 
The humility that constitutes a godly fast happens when we set aside our desire to pursue His desire. And His desire is for us as His people (laughs) to show Him off, to manifest His character in all of our dealings with each other because we love Him. When we fast and don't act toward one another in keeping with His character, our fasts are no better than the the false oaths that were talked about a couple of chapters earlier. Our external piety is just a mockery of God. Here's what God calls a fast. Verse 6, Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Beloved, whatever the symbol is in a fast, that's the substance. That's the substance. The symbol points to the substance. We get that back with me. See, that's a fast by God's declaration. And that's that's the only definition that matters. It's His definition. And that's exactly where God takes His rebuke against the Judahites in Zechariah's day. The same thing. Zechariah 7, verses 8-10, through 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother and do not oppress the widow or the orphan the stranger or the poor and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another that last part that's internal right evil in your hearts and that's not just an old testament measure of genuine submission to god and love for god instead of fake external piety because James echoes the same point in James 1 verses 26 and 27 he says if it, and this is James the brother of Jesus he says if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart this man's religion is worthless and if you want to know what James means by not bridling the tongue read chapter 3 of James he says with the same tongue We bless God and we curse man who is made in God's image. See, where we mess up is in our dealings with each other. And then James goes on and he says, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Does that sound familiar? And to keep oneself unstained by the world. Pure, undefiled, genuine religion is love for God that extends itself in the form of loving other people as we have been loved by Him. Treating others as God has treated us. Now feel free to correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that one pendulum has swung too far in the wrong direction. We have reacted so strongly against a social gospel that I'm afraid we have redefined what God calls true religion. This thing about caring for the material needs of the downtrodden isn't some peripheral point in the Bible. 
This is what God sets before us as a measure of true godliness in both Testaments, and he does it over and over and over. Do a word study sometime of the word widow, orphan, and alien, or sojourner, depending on your translation. We're talking about scores of verses that have to do with our responsibility to the downtrodden. 1 John 3, verses 16 and 18, 16 to 18, John says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for the brother. But whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. When was the last time you looked for a need in the body that you could meet and then met it? With no regard for tax breaks and no concern for any recognition that the gift had been given. You just met it. Rejoicing that God had given you the opportunity to act on His behalf. To show to somebody else the kind of grace and generosity and kindness that God has poured out upon you. I happen to know that there are some in in this body who regularly buy gift cards and then anonymously give them to people whom they know have fallen on tough financial times. They get no tax break and zero recognition from men for doing that. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion who a couple of those people are, but I couldn't prove it because they're really good at the anonymous part. That's what God calls a fast. It has nothing to do with self and everything to do with Him. It rejoices in being like He is. When you drop your plans for an evening to go put your arm around a brother or sister who's hurting, when you give up a Saturday to go cook cook hot dogs for the families of kids at the elementary school up the road, who attend our child evangelism fellowship group, when you do without something you wanted to buy for yourself to buy a mattress and a coffee table for a Chinese student who came over to go to UTA with nothing but the clothes on her back, when you risk the comfort level that you've established with a neighbor to share the good news of Jesus Christ with him, that's what God calls a fast. I should point out something here that doesn't go without saying, unfortunately, and that is not politically correct, so brace yourself. The repeated call in both testaments to God's people to practice kindness and compassion, to care for the downtrodden, and provide for the poor, is first and foremost, not exclusively, but first and foremost, about how God's people are to treat God's It is not first and foremost about how we are to deal with those outside the covenant community. Please understand me. Under the old covenant, the call to social justice and compassion toward the disadvantaged and downtrodden was far and away about how Israelites were to treat Israelites. And under the new covenant, the same call to social justice and compassion toward the poor and downtrodden is far and away about how we as believers are to treat our fellow believers. That doesn't mean that we don't demonstrate the same 
justice and compassion and kindness toward those outside the community of faith. But it most assuredly means that our top priority is the community of faith. If you don't buy that, go and look through the, the Scriptures. Isaiah 58.6 is not the fast which, which I choose. Skip down to verse 7. To divide your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, your kindred. Zechariah 7. Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Don't devise evil in your hearts against one another. James, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Everything that James talks about has to do with those whom he is calling my beloved brethren. The passage in 1 John, which I don't have on the slide, it says, whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? I, I could go on and on, guys. This is what the Scriptures talk about when they tell us to, to show material love to other people. It starts with the household of God. If you don't like that, you know, all I can say is we, we are all called to submit to what God says first. And the cool part is what God does with that. By the way, when Paul went through, I'll come back to that in a second, when Paul went through Macedonia and Asia Minor and he gathered money from poor persecuted Christians in those churches, what did he do with that money? Did he take it and give it to poverty-stricken people throughout the towns that he went into? No. He took every bit of it back to the city of Jerusalem and he gave it to the poor, more persecuted Christians in that church. That's why he gathered the money in the first place. Now why is that all important? Well, what does God do with the love that we show to each other in material terms? We can talk all day about loving each other. But when we start having to give stuff up to show that love, that's visible love. And what does God do with visible love? By this you will know, they will know, that you are my disciples by the love that you show to one another. There is a huge evangelistic power that God gives to the love that we show one another. And that's why we, that's why that's our priority, guys. The, the key to evangelism is not to fix the problems and pains and suffering of this world. Jesus could have done it with a spoken word. The reason we're here is to draw men to Christ. And the primary way that God does that through acts of love is through the love that we show one another. Please don't think I'm saying we are not to be loving to unbelievers. That is not the point. It's a point of emphasis. It's a point of, of where we focus resources. So where do we start? We look for the needs in our body and we make sure that they're met. Every legitimate need. There are times when those needs are not met. I had a brother who stayed away from churches for decades because the big church, the big well-known church that he went to, 
that talks so much about taking care of needs left a good friend of his in a house with a dirt floor and a wood-burning stove. And that person was active in the church and serving in the church. And there were other people in the church living in multi-million dollar houses. I don't know what the exact answer to dealing with those issues is, but I know it's not to turn a blind eye to them. We were supposed to take care of each other. That's what God calls a fast. And then, when we've taken a good hard look at the needs within our own covenant community and met them, we certainly, certainly look for ways that we can reach out and show compassion to people of peace. If you want to know what I mean by people of peace, read Matthew chapter 7. <laughs> it's the ones that aren't antagonistic toward your efforts to love and serve them in the name of Christ. Now, I want to touch again on this issue of symbol versus substance. Symbols. Um, we have a strong tendency to get symbols mixed up with the reality to which they point. And that messes things up every single time that happens. I've talked about this once before, but if you're going down a highway and you see a sign that says exit quarter mile, if you, if you treat the sign as the exit, you're going to have a close encounter with the guardrail, right? But what about when you abstain from eating for a day or for several days as a fast to the Lord? Is your abstinence from eating the symbol or the substance of true fasting? It's the symbol. It's a vivid memorial. It's a reminder that draws in your senses, your physical being, because it's very hard not to think about the fact that you're hungry. But the act of fasting from, from meals is not some kind of spiritual end in itself. Fasting doesn't make you holy, not even a little. It's a reminder of God's call to you to submit your desires and your agenda to His. Not just when it comes to eating, but when it comes to everything. And you know what? It's a good, useful, potent reminder. We, it's so easy for us to treat fasting as if it guarantees that the, the, the prayers that are offered up when we're skipping meals will get more attention from God than the prayers that we offer up when we're not skipping meals. But you know what that is? That's manipulation of God. And that's not going to happen. We can't treat fasting or giving or church attendance or singing we can't treat any of that stuff as a manipulation of God. Fasting is about consciously, intentionally subordinating us to Him. And that applies to everything that we do as an act of submission to God. When we put money in the offering plate or give money directly to somebody in need, it's not because God needs our money to meet that need. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and He can cash them in anytime He wants to. It's not to get God's favor so that He will treat us better somehow. Beloved, if God never did one more thing for you than save you by the blood of Jesus Christ, you would have no need to ever ask for anything else. The rest is icing on the cake. We give to display the character 
of our giving God. To extend to others the compassion and the kindness that God has already poured out in overflowing measure upon us in Jesus Christ. The compassion and kindness that as was pointed out in the worship this morning is simply part of who He is. (laughs) We love because He first loved us. Isaiah 58.13 does something interesting on this matter of fasting. It actually takes it over to the issue of the Sabbath under the Old Covenant. And it tells... It says to God through Isaiah tells Israel that the Sabbath is about His people turning their feet away from doing their own pleasure to doing His pleasure. About desisting from their ways and seeking His ways and His pleasure. About turning, interestingly, turning away from speaking their own word so that they're listening to His word. The fasting to which God calls His people isn't merely denying ourselves a meal. It's denying ourselves. In all respects, not as the end point, but in order to follow Christ. Because we can't follow us and Him at the same time. Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The expulsive power of a new and better affection. In Zechariah 7 verses 9 through 12, God tells Zechariah, uh, he gives Zechariah kind of an interesting contrast that tells us what the birthplace of fake feasts is. <laughs> the root of of hypocritical feasts. He just in verses 9 and 10 told Judah that they were supposed to treat other people with the same kind of justice and compassion and love that He has shown to them. But when He then indicts them for their failure, He doesn't go back and and reiterate those points about what they were supposed to have done. Look at what He does. He says, he doesn't say, let me, let me go this far. He doesn't say, after saying you were to dispense justice, he doesn't say they failed to dispense justice. After saying that they were to practice kind and com- kindness and compassion each to his brother, he doesn't say they failed to, to dispense kindness and compassion each to his brother. He doesn't talk about how they oppressed the widow and the orphan and the poor and how they devised evil in their hearts against one another. Now, all of those, all of those lapses are implied and they are explicitly spelled out in other passages. But that's not where God goes here. (laughs) Where, Where does He go? He goes to the root of the problem, not the manifestation of the problem. See, the problem with Judah is that instead of a righteous fast, They fasted from listening to God. He says, they refused, verse 11, they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and they stopped their ears from hearing. It's like they put their fingers in their ears when God spoke. And they made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. 
The reason that their fasts were fraudulent, the reason they persistently violated God's character in their treatment of one another, all came back to one simple failure. They stopped listening to God. As Isaiah 58 said, they preferred their own words over God's words. What happens when you listen to yourself instead of God? Well, it's a quick track to spiritual suicide. And it very definitely puts you on the wrong path. What did God do because Judah persisted in not listening to His words? Verse 13, It came about that just as He called and they would not listen, so they called and God says, I would not listen. You don't ever want to be there. You don't want to kick against the goads. You don't want to resist submitting to God so long and so persistently that God stops hearing you. When that happened, God sent Nebuchadnezzar's armies to besiege his own beloved city, Jerusalem, in a horrifying 18-month siege. If you want to see what happened, go all the way back to Deuteronomy 29 because God predicted what would happen hundreds of years before it did. After the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, God says here, He scattered His people with a storm wind among the nations, all the nations whom they had not known. He did that with Israel and He did that with Judah. He left the land physically desolate, but He reminded the Judahites that in the final analysis, the land was desolate because of them because of their sin. Are you listening to God? Is it His words that are directing your steps or is it yours? This isn't talking about individualized revelation or some kind of ecstatic experience of God. This is talking about the Word of God. For the Judahites in Zechariah's day, that was the law and the prophets and that's exactly in verse 12 what God says they didn't pay attention to. For us, it's both Testaments. It's not out there somewhere where we can't get to it. It's right here. Are you listening to God? Is it His words that are directing your steps? Or is it yours? If you aren't even bothering yourself to know the Word of God in any depth, then you can be guaranteed that you're not listening to Him because this is how He has revealed Himself to us. Our feast is God. The Christian life is a life of godly fasts and godly feasts. It's a life of putting one thing off in order to put something else on that is infinitely superior. It's a series of fasts and feasts at the same time. That for which we hope, that endless feast of dwelling in the very presence of God together with the saints in His redeemed place, that hope is future. It's a hope that we don't get to see just yet. But we will. We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It's Titus 2.13. And until that day, until while we're here, until that day, our greatest feast 
is our relationship with God and with those who belong to Him. That's a feast we get to participate in together. (laughs) The quality of that one all-important relationship grows when we stop listening to ourselves and listen exclusively to Him. And when we heed what we hear, because biblical listening is never just sound waves bouncing off our eardrums. Biblical listening is hearing and doing. James had a lot to say about that too. When we listen, when we listen to what he tells us, it's not unclear what we're supposed to put off and what we're supposed to put on. What we're supposed to fast from and what we're supposed to feast on. The righteous fast of a true follower of Christ, not the symbol but the substance, is the setting aside of anything and everything that gets in the way of putting on Christ. He is our feast. In Philippians 3, Paul says, but whatever things were gained to me, whatever, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that that I may gain Christ. There's nothing ambiguous about that. (laughs) We put off everything else that we have ever considered to be gain because we know what real gain is. And that is to know Christ Jesus our Lord. Why are you here this morning? Is it for Him? Why do you give? Is it for Him? Why do you sing? Why do you pray? Why do you do kind things for other people? Is it for Him? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Why do you do the work that you do all day, five days a week? Why do you do whatever it is that you do with your free time? Why do you do what you do when you're the only person in the room? Is it for Him? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What do we do when we come to realize that our exercises of piety don't come from a pious heart. God gives us that answer in the next chapter, so come next week. Loving Father, we ask You once again, teach us to fast only for You and to feast only on You. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.